So, I uh, promised about two weeks ago that we were going to complete the parable of the virgins with the parable of the talents. And so, if you've got your Bibles, come to you, Matthew 25. And we're going to go there, and this is the missional test. And so, we looked at the uh, parable of the talents being a relational test. God asks, who do you love? And it's a question that we must grapple with because God says, if you love someone more than me, so if you love yourself, your wife, your child, your mum, your dad, a grandparent, if you love anybody more than me, you're not worthy of something. And we looked at that, what we weren't worthy of, didn't we? We're not worthy to enter into the marriage feast, the marriage celebration with Christ, because we are left outside of, because we actually weren't made ready. And so Revelation 19, 7-9 talks about being made ready. The bride has made herself ready. So we were all betrothed to Christ, but now that we're betrothed, we have to get ready for that marriage. And so it was the relational test. But there's two tests within the body. There's the relational test and then there's the missional test. Who do you now live for? Whose purpose do you live for? Is it still you or is it me? And the challenge is if you don't lose other lovers, the likelihood of you actually living for him in accuracy is pretty tiny because you're still living for you because you haven't lost you and fallen fully in love with him. And so then you still will define what it even looks like to even live for him. So Jesus said, you must pick up your cross, carry your cross and follow me, but you must lose your life for my sake, not yours. And it's a really challenging area because we can be committed to the cause but not surrendered to Christ. So we can be all about his cause, but we're actually not about Christ. And Peter was all about the cause, but really not about Christ. Until one day he started to realize, oh my goodness, I'm actually not surrendered to Christ because I just denied Christ, even though I was about the cause. And this is an area of real deception in the body because it's so subtle. And so we have to look at this because God wants us walking in the accuracy of what it truly is to be his follower, correct? What it really means to be a disciple. Not what I think it means, but what it really means to be his. And then he is looking for a people who can demonstrate the reality of him on the earth. That's actually what it is to be Christ-like and to be a Christian. It's someone who can live out this reality, this dimension. Not just say I'm a Christian, believe things, but then fall short of the ability to live. There's no good in if we just believe stuff, but I don't live it, eh? Because people want to see the manifestation of the glory of God on the earth, which is in you and I. Where's Kurt gone? This thing. I'm gonna I'm gonna change this over. Okay, is that all right? Right. So I'm on that other mic that I'm using. If you can just turn me down a little bit. All right, I'm going to read out a number of scriptures first, and I'm going to read these reasonably fast, and this will give us a good context of the whole thing. And then I want to come back, and I want to read the Matthew 25 
parable. Matthew 25, 14 to 13. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey. Immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one who also had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has more shall be given... And he will have an abundance, but the one who does not have, even what he does have, shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. <clears throat> it's a fairly full-on parable, isn't it? And one that the church has to be fully awake to because it reflects us. God is speaking to us in this parable. Matthew 10, 38-39 And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. So we can see there's an expectation that Jesus had that we're going to follow him, we're going to pick up his cross. If we want to hold on to our life, we're going to lose it, but if we lose it, we find it. Because he's come to bring us eternal life. It's not about the old life and finding that and changing that. It's about a brand new life that I need to find in Christ. What about 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 13? If I speak with tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Then it goes on and actually explains the type of love that we're to have. So it's eternal love, isn't it? This is the love that we are to have in us. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's not jealous. It doesn't brag. It's not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its, its own. It's not provoked doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. It doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hope all things, endures all things. Love never fails. 
But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away with. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away with. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I know fully just as I have been fully known. But now faith, hope, and love abide in these. The greatest is love. There's a clear expectation and a declaration that you can move in signs and wonders and still not know God. That's what it's saying. You can have a gift of prophecy. You can prophesy. You can have the gift of faith. You can minister from function and still not know who God is and not know love because God is love. And the Bible's telling you if you minister like that, then you're nothing. You can give your life and it will be a waste of time because it's all based on you, not him. That'd be pretty harsh, wouldn't it? To realize that in your own head you've laid your life down, but really just for you and your own selfish ambition because of what you thought it all was about. And we have to be awakened to these realities because these are like warning scriptures. These are like love scriptures. They're fear of God passages to awaken us out of ourselves and truly into him. And then when you bring the parable of the virgins and the parable of the talents, you see one dimension happening of a people who are called out to be his prized possession that have left everything of world and are now fully wholeheartedly his. That's the journey of maturity because to still be consumed in me is to still be a child. To be thinking about self and living for self and self's priorities is still to be a child in Christ. And Paul is saying, when I was a child, I thought like a child. When I became spiritually mature, I became a spiritual mature adult, a bride, his co-heir. It was no longer about me because Jesus was never about himself, was he? So I now I reflect Christ because Christ was not about himself. Christ laid his life down for others, so now I do, which is the evidence of spiritual maturity. And this is what Paul is saying, and this is why Paul wrote a lot of the stuff, because Paul's life was the demonstration of going from death to life. Paul's life is a demonstration of going from someone who thought he knew God, thought he was doing God's will, to actually doing it. <clears throat> Excuse me. 1 Corinthians 14.1, pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts but especially that you may prophesy, but it says pursue love first, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts. There's an order. Can you see that? Romans 10, 1 to 2, Brethren, my heart's desire, my prayer to God for them, which is his fellow Israelites, is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. So you can have plenty of passion and zeal, but not in accordance to the true knowledge of God. Why did Paul write this? Who's he writing it about? Himself. Did he have zeal for God, but in accordance to knowledge? He had zeal, but not in accordance to the true knowledge that set you free. He was going the opposite way. You and I can be exactly the same. You can be extremely passionate for God and run off without knowledge the true knowing of how God appropriates and ministers to everything. But there are these works to be done. And I hope that's what you're seeing from some of these passages. There are these works, but how these works get outworked is 
critical in the whole process. Like it's not just give it a go, freestyle, free will, and hopefully you figure it out. That's why God has put scriptures in there where we see people who say, but I prophesied, I cast out demons, I preached. And he goes, yeah, but you still didn't do the will of my father. What? I thought that was the will. Yeah, it's part of it, but there's way more than that. And there's an order to all those things because all those things are are an expression, an outcome of your true knowing of who I am because you've fallen in love with me. So you not only know who I am, you know my way. And it's a way issue. And we need to know both, guys, and it's a narrow way. But once you find it, it's wide. That's the dichotomy of the kingdom. It's narrow, but it's wide. Like it's the mustard seed, but then it expands into the whole bread. Yeah? It's a tiny seed that becomes the largest of garden plants, this kingdom dimension. Then you run into James 2, 14 to 26. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? This has confused people in the body for years, this one. Can that save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warned, be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by faith, by works, and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. You see, it's not just about any works. What kind of works is it about? Works by faith. And faith sees into the unseen, isn't it? Because anyone can do any work, can't they? All other belief systems can do good works. So it can't be about just any works. And we know that it's works that are righteous works that are done by faith, which isn't this wishy-washy faith. It's a knowing faith. So by faith, it says that Noah, God warned Noah about the unseen Things. So he built an ark in accordance to faith of what God showed him in the unseen realm. That's why the world had no idea what he was doing because they'd never seen an ark and they'd never seen rain like that. So the work is foreign to the earth, even though it has an impact on the earth. So it's not any work that's very clear, but there are works that are done by faith which is why we were going on about faith for so long, about what real faith in God is. Because most people that I run into, a lot of them think it's this sort of wishy-washy thing where we hope God can come through for us. 
rather than knowing because I'm seeing because I have a conviction of what's in the unseen. I have an insurance. And so I step out into that and bingo, there is the righteous act of the saints, which is the wedding garment that I put on because my whole life was lived for Christ now, no longer for me. Doing things thinking it's in him, but it's actually just in me. Ephesians 2 verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. We are his workmanship. Anybody here build with your hands? Anybody builders or craftsmen or, yeah, designers? You build. So we are his workmanship. Who is the builder of the house? God. So Jesus said, I build my church, which means his hands are going to come on you and he's going to shape you to look like him because we are his workmanship. Keith Harrison makes these beautiful guitars. Not that one, but Jay's one, LJ's one, Maddie's one, I've got one. A whole lot of people have had these guitars that Keith Harrison has made. Keith used to be here with us and he's up and living. And the guitar... The guitars are extraordinary. They have this beautiful, crisp sound. The guitar is the workmanship of Keith's hands. They are beautiful. I don't know what they would cost, probably thousands of dollars. So we are to be the workmanship of God's hands. So if God is building the church the way God intends through his own hands, then we're going to do these works that are in faith, which means we're able to actually accomplish what we're instructed to accomplish, correct? Because God just doesn't say one thing and leave us hanging. So if God is building the house, if we're the workmanship of God, then apparently there are these works that have been prepared beforehand. Now, our lives were created in Christ beforehand, correct? Can you see the similarity, the the oneness in if I was created in Christ before the foundations of the earth and those works were also created in Christ, then I, me and the life in Christ and the works that I'm going to do for God were created beforehand. That's why it's all in fellowship, oneness with God. If I'm not in fellowship with God, I'm just going to do any work. But when I'm in fellowship with Christ, I'll do a work of Faith, because I'm one with God and God is showing me the unseen. And so I step out by faith, which is an absolute knowledge because of my fellowship with God. Oneness, like Adam had in the garden, I minister from that place. That is what you call a righteous work or a righteous act that is rewarded in Revelation 19, 7 to 9. The bride will be given garments which are the righteous works of her of the church. Not any works. Are we tracking? It's quite a bit to get your head around, so don't. Get your heart around it. Allow the Spirit of God to reveal what's being declared in the understanding place, which is not your head, it's your heart. And then ask the Holy Spirit to take that seed and renew your head to what's being spoken. That's the only chance you're going to get at getting the revelation of what I'm saying and then change. Because in our natural, it's real easy to do works. But we actually can't do these eternal works in the sense of 
Can't love God and love people the way I'm instructed. But then you go, but you know what? I can actually lay hands on people and cast out demons. That's trippy, eh? That Peter couldn't actually keep the commandment, but he could preach and he could actually cast out demons. Like, have you ever thought about that? So there are some things under the anointing and the power, and there's some things you can't do until there's a work done in you, until he comes in and he does a deep work within you that releases you from you. So this is huge for us as his people. So how are all the works in God to be accomplished? By faith. What do we need to be in if we are to do these works? Fellowship with God, not function. So we are to become one with God. What are these good works? So the first good work is a work of fellowship. What is it? To believe. Now, does that mean just to mentally agree? Or does that mean to have a living conviction of what's said that would change you? Because apparently demons believe. But demons aren't exactly demonstrating Christ, are they? And that's what he's saying there. Demons believe. Non-Christians can believe. It doesn't mean they live. So as Christians, we can say believe, but does your life reflect your belief? This is the authenticity of your belief. A believing in God is a full conviction of heart which enables the demonstration of what you say you believe. So that's the first work, but it's not even a functional work. It's a fellowship work of being one with God, coming into oneness. When I was a child, I used to think like a child, act like a child. As I started to grow up in the spirit, I become a mature adult. And I'm able to live this other life out that I couldn't live as a child. So John 6, the work of God. What's the work of God that we may believe? Is it another miracle? No, it's not. It's to believe what I say, which you need to be in fellowship with me to really hear. Otherwise, you never hear it, or you hear something else and go the opposite way to the way you should have gone. Second work, love God, love people. The way God loved God and loved people. That's a tall order again, isn't it? So we can see there are these works, and we're going to get back to this parable. What's another work? Being actively involved in the discipleship-making process. You can't make disciples because only God can build the church, but you can be made as a disciple, and you can walk with other people while God makes them. So I can't change the heart of anybody, can I? But I can walk with Tim, and we can walk together as God changes us. And I can encourage Tim, and I can carry his burdens, and I can be there for him in his darkest moments. Hey, bro. And we can walk together, and I can pray for him, and he can pray for me. And we can encourage each other, and then we let God build us. So I'm never not going to be on my own doing this Christian thing on my own stuff, because I know the pattern's not that. The pattern is to walk with others because that's exactly what my Messiah patterned for three and a half years. Like he was never not walking with those men. So it's not an option. But we've made it an option in the body, which is all part of our immaturity of being a child because we still actually haven't lost us and we're still in love with us because we're not laying our lives down for others because it's still all about me. 
and what I get out of it. So then if I enter into discipleship, it's still about me and what I can get from this group rather than it be about how I'm coming to bring and give and serve. And if I get anything, it's a bonus because my father's given me all things I need anyway because he's my source and resource. You hear this? This is another standard, isn't it? See, this isn't the earth. This is eternal. This is what... The power of God wants to raise us to an eternal standard, not an earthly one. We testify to the reality of God changing our lives. This is another work. You can't help but want to share what he's doing in you. Like it becomes you're compelled to share. You're compelled to go because the life in you is greater than what you've ever known. The fifth thing is you pray for the sick, you prophesy, you feed orphans and widows, and you reach out to the poor. You have a heart for people, and you're investing in God's plan. And those are just five things, and there's more than those, but let's come back to this parable. It's a parable of the talents. It's about outer works by faith. Outer works by faith. I've said it's the missional test. Verse 14. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey. What is the kingdom of heaven? Okay? So it's a parable. A parable is a story or an illustration that is making one main point. Okay? That's what a parable is. You don't necessarily go through and try and create, oh, it's this and it's that and it's this and it's that. What you're looking at and what you need to find is the one main point that God is making through the illustration. Because he says it's the kingdom. So the kingdom of heaven is like a man. It's not a man that went on a journey. It's like a man. Okay, So it's an illustration, a story to try and lead us to the central point. It's like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. So what are you hearing right now of who are the characters in the story? Who are the characters in the story? Who's the man? God. Okay, who are the slaves? Right, good. Ten points. So he called. You've been called? You've been chosen. Okay, so who's he speaking about? Okay, we got that? Because many people have made it about other people. See, if you don't make it about us and it's about someone else, then it's like, oh, it doesn't reflect me. What we're about to go through doesn't reflect me because it's not about us, it's about them. He gave his own possessions to them. What you got? Gifts. He gave you son. Gifts. Power. So we've been given these things. Cool. To one, he gave five talents. To another, two. And to another, one, each according to his own ability. Now, that's not very fair, Greg. Or is it? It's fully, it's not even about what's fair, is it? It's about what God decides is going to happen. 
So what we say is some got five, some got two, some got one. Let me read you Romans 12, verse 4 to 6. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members, members one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. Now that doesn't necessarily mean singing here, being on a door, making cups of coffee in the cafe, teaching at children's. That's not, they're a grace that build the house. Like if we actually didn't meet in a building, the grace gifts are to build the people. So it has nothing to do with meeting in a building. The building just helps facilitate something God wants to do. We could go to a beach. We could come around to my house. We could go to a local park. It's all irrelevant, the building. So we have to realize it's not about... The challenge is it's it's entangled into two things, and you have to be able to see that we could do all this and there's no people operating in their gifts because we're actually just doing it from our perspective, and we think it's like maintenance, you know. And so... Each and every one of you who are in Christ, you've been given a measure of Christ and a gracing and a gifting for it to be, what? Building the body. Not your own individual ministry. And you may not even be aware of the gift on your life, so it's laying dormant. So it's actually not doing anything even though you turn up. Because when we come, we're actually coming for what? Ourselves or to see the body of Christ established with what is on me and in me. So I'm always actively because the gift is not my identity, but it's in me. So Paul said, I am an apostle. He didn't say I've got the gift of an apostle. But you have to know it's not your identity. So the gift is not your identity. You're a bondservant is your identity, but you serve with a gift as a bondservant. So these three slaves are given talents in an accordance to their own ability that God has already predetermined and decided. And then he went on his journey. So who are we talking about again? So Jesus came, ministered for three and a half years, and then he took off again, didn't he? He's coming back again, isn't he? So who then did he send? Right, to help who? With what? To see the what? And his church built. But we don't build it ourselves, even though he's anointing us to serve, he's going to come and he partners with us to see this people erected out of the earth, but on earth, and they have eternal life within them, and they are one with one another because they're in fellowship with God and one another, all through his power, not through our own ability. It's truly divine. It's truly a supernatural work. It is truly the work of God, full stop, that you and I just surrender to. And then he brings in, all of a sudden you're realizing you're being used, but you're not building, but you're the recipient of being built. But you're the one who speaks. You're the one who goes. You're the one who loves. You're the one who hugs. You're the one that's walking with. Tracking? Okay. Okay. And it's all of us. It's not the paid ones. 
Let's not go there. <laughs> Immediately. Don't you like that word? Immediately, the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more. Because the person is aware of what's on them. The person is aware of what they have received. And so immediately, because you're awakened to a reality, you what? Use and serve. And all of a sudden, five more are produced. Who for? The master. Who is? Okay. Not for self. Not for my thing. Not for me to look good. For him. Why? Because I fell in love with him and I lost my life and I'm fully in love with him, not me and other people. Because I've passed the relational test. See how these things are all connected? And you can't move one without the other, but there's a defining order of one and two within them. Immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded them and gained four and five more. In the same manner, the one who received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. What are you doing with what you've been given? Because someone's coming back and is going to go, what did you do with what I gave? You don't want to be this one. You want to be the one of the five or the two, yeah? You don't want to be the servant of the slave of the same master as the other two. Now, after a long time, what did we look at two weeks ago? Did we say God was holding back? Jesus was holding back? Isn't that what we said? Now, while the bridegroom was delaying, why was he delaying? So we could get ready. So we could be using, we would be found when he turns, not asleep, not bearing our gift, our talent, but actually actively involved and part of being a member of a body. Not this, I don't need to be part of a church to be a Christian rubbish. That's just demonic, immature thinking right there. If he says that he's called us to be a body, we need to be in a body. Doesn't mean this body, but it needs to be in a body because that's where you've been created to function. Not as an individual, as a lone ranger. We've got enough of them running around on the planet. And the body suffers, doesn't it? And this is how you get three arms trying to do the legs work. This is how you get ten eyes and no ears. It's a weird-looking Christ, I'm telling you. So we can see here that after a long time, Jesus, who's the master of the slaves, is coming to settle accounts. What is that? The judgment seat. What for, Danny? Reward, which is in Romans and Corinthians. That every one of us, his children, are going to give an account 
for the life we have lived, not for punishment because Jesus has saved us from that place. It's for what did you do with how you lived? I gave you everything pertaining to life and godliness, and individually you're going to be held in account for your life. Ah, well, I buried it. Well, you know what? I'm sorry, but you're not going to be part of all you could have been a part of because you weren't obedient. You weren't faithful, which is the point the parable is making. The first point in the parable of the virgins was what? Are you ready? And then it's faithful. So ready people are faithful people. Faithful people are ready people. For what? The return of their groom. And when they stand in front of him, they will testify of what? Or he will know what you've done. And then the Bible says his fire is going to go through and it's reward or loss. Which one do you want? You're in complete control of your loss or your reward. Are you aware of that? You are the one that decide. No one else. God has given you freedom of choice to choose him and live for him or you and love you and live for you, hasn't he? I mean, he is a beautiful God. He gives you free choice because he's not looking for a people that just want him because he says they have to want him. We all have the freedom of choice, but with that freedom of choice, we can abuse it. And we choose us because we don't know him. And so we end up burying things. And like that slave, we're afraid of God. Like that's the poison of sin, isn't it? Like Adam is in fellowship with God. He falls out of fellowship because of sin. Now he's afraid of God and he's hiding under a bush. But two seconds before, he wasn't afraid of God at all. And why would you be afraid of God? Because you don't know God. But if you know God, then there is a fear of God. But that doesn't actually make you run away from God. It makes you run to God. And it's defined by love. Because you're brought into the amazement of what you've actually been created for. Like you're astounded with the reality that I get an opportunity to love you and live for you. Like I've actually invited to live for you. And it's profound because you're fully aware of where you've come from and you're aware that you don't deserve any of it, but you're invited to partake at the table with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, all these great people of faith. God's going to be there and your name's right there. It's called Greg Simner with a plaque tag on it like we had last Saturday with the wedding. And you walk up and you go, look, there's, that's a cool picture, man. That's awesome. Is that your mum? Is that your wish? It's awesome. Well done, mate. And your name's there. And you go, oh, there's my seat. Move over. (laughs) You're in my seat. (laughs) And you take your place because you discovered with him, him, his will, your role in that, and you played your part. But see, this other guy, he doesn't know any of this stuff. And so he buries his, and Jesus has come back to settle the accounts. The one who received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, 
You entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Something we're trying to teach our kids is to be trustworthy in the little. Because it's very hard to trust you in the much if you don't prove you're trustworthy in the little. And it's exactly the same with God. God says, I've given you, I've invited you, but can you actually be faithful with a little? Like, like what would a little be? And what would that be, Warren, in our context here? What would, what would being faithful in the little look like here? Serving, good. What else? Giving, good. What else? What's even more little than that? Turning up on time. That would be little, wouldn't it? You know how many people are here consistently on time? About 25 people in a room of how many? 200? Like, that would be something. See, sometimes we wonder why we're not getting the big and glorious revelations. It's because we're not even faithful in the little. God can't even trust us with being on time. But we're never late to the things we love. In fact, we're early, correct? Like, if you turn up to work late, consistently, over a year, your boss would come and have a chat, correct? And if that behavior never changed, you probably wouldn't have a job. Now, we work for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Like, we are invited to partake of this royal dimension, and yet we can't necessarily be trusted in the little things. And this isn't to make us feel guilty, because there's no condemnation in Christ, but it is to paint a picture of maybe where we're at within our fellowship with God and how much we love God to awaken us up to go, maybe some things might need to change in my heart. I might have to take an honest account of where I'm really at and then ask him because I don't want to be the one that buried the talent. Like I don't want to stand there when he returns and go, oops. Or not even be wanting or waiting for his return. Paul says, I can't wait for the return. He says, I'm excited about the return because I already know I'm getting a crown of righteousness. Like it's fully possible to live a life that you already know that you're getting your reward because your life reflects it and you know it because your life is the demonstration of it. And then you're growing and maturing in that reality. That's how much we can know because what is said and what is, is one, becoming one, will be one. And too often we've excused these types of passages and said this is about Christians and non-Christians. I don't know how many non-Christians are waiting for the return of Christ. Do you know any? I don't know how many Christians, especially in the parable, have the Holy Spirit in them. Do you? Like where are they? I don't know. I don't know how we've come up with it. Well, I do know how we come up with this stuff. It's to release the pressure off what we're supposed to be in. And this is why people don't preach it, because then the next week there's no Peter here. <laughs> so we keep giving the people what they want, so they keep turning up. 
because man's building the system, not Jesus building his own house, which has got nothing to do with turning up and sitting on a seat. But everything about transformation. So he's coming to settle these accounts. There's these faithful ones. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things you would put in charge. Also, the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. Can you see how the excitement in the voice? Like, you, you entrusted. Like, you gave it to me. Man, what a privilege and an honor it is to actually lay your life down for the God of the universe because you could have left me in my sin and iniquity, but you didn't. By your mercy, mercy, you raised me up, and now I get an opportunity not just to live but to serve. Wow, what an opportunity and a privilege it is to serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords and to give my life and to lay it down for you. And not only that, then to receive, but I don't do it to receive. I do it because I'm radically in love, and in view of your mercy, I lay my life down as an offering which is my true worship, not singing songs. And then people see the difference because they actually come to you and start asking you, why are you different? Like, why are you always here first? Why are you the one that goes extra mile at work? Why are you the one always buying morning tea? Why are you always the one first to put a whip round for the boss or whatever, or you speak words? Why are you so foreign to me and everyone in this workplace? This is what we should be experiencing if we truly are in what we're to be in, Jesus Christ. Because I'm sure they did it to Jesus. Yes? You speak with one of authority, not like them. I can see you're different. They talk it, you live it. I'm going there and hang out with you. (laughs) You too, surely me too. We'll have a party. So his master says, well done, faithful with a few things. He also says, enter the joy of your master. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, master, I knew you to be a hard man. What's your reality of God? It's good. Is he your father? And is he long-suffering first before he's disciplining? See, the knowledge of God we carry is going to determine everything. Like everything. Because it's all based on the true knowing of God. The only thing, and all the messages that I and we preach here, can be wrapped up in two words. Knowing him. Because we know that if you know him, you love him. And if you love him, you will live for him. Like it is so simple. But because we try to grasp it in the mind, we've overcomplicated. And that's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians eleven three, he said, I am afraid of something, church. He said, I'm afraid that you church Corinthians have been led astray in your minds from the simplicity and the purity of what it really is to know Jesus Christ. Not know about, but to know it, to come to know and know him, to have him known. He compares it to the fall of man because he compares it to Eve being led astray in the garden, which was pretty dynamic, correct? 
Adam and Eve being led astray cost the fall of man. So Paul is comparing the church of being led astray in her mind, because she thinks this is where you understand and know God, from actually the purity of what it is to truly know God through fellowship with God, not on the basis of what I can do, but on the basis of my surrender and my weakness. And so he compares it to the fall. I don't think you get bigger than comparing it to the fall. And he is concerned with a holy fear. Hence he says in Romans or Corinthians that with the fear of the Lord I know, I persuade men, meaning men and women, mankind, knowing that the judgment seat is coming. So I'm trying to persuade. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to persuade you through preaching the wisdom of God. I'm hoping you are hearing, taking honest, accurate accounts of where you're really at as an individual and then going, okay, what does that look like? Do I need to grow? Do I need to know more? Do I need to spend more time asking in in fellowship with God, the Holy Spirit, so I actually live to the fulfillment of what I'm called for while I breathe. Because then we're going to be a people and a family of real substance, aren't we? Like we'll be a family and really live as a family where we love one another, encourage one another, want to see one another built up, not just come and have a meeting on a Sunday. And although we do some cool things as a family, like have the food night and maybe we really we're probably still very individualistic in our approach to one another. But we like one another because, you know, we're friends and it's all good and we like the coffee and there's nothing wrong with that stuff, but we're not necessarily in fellowship with one another of the same mind, the same spirit, the same love, and then God's adding to that people because he sees himself in us being grown and matured. And he sees a family that are really, really engaged with him and one another in living this. So this guy, he's afraid. I was afraid and went away and I hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. I had a look at that word lazy. The word slothful is there. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank. And on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now once again, you have to be careful within the context of what we're looking at. So once again, it's a parable talking about the kingdom, which we're talking about being back on earth where Jesus comes back and reigns. Now we're all followers, so you don't get thrown into hell because you actually didn't serve God. Because otherwise then we're in and out, in and out, in and out, aren't we? It means his blood's not covering you. So if his blood covers you, his blood covers you. And everything then is based on behavior, isn't it? Rather than belonging. So 
If it's about works, whether I'm in and out or not, then how many works do I have to do? And how do I know if I've done enough? And how do I know if I've done it right? Oh my goodness, I'm going to be messed with worry and I'm going to be so afraid. I probably won't do anything because I don't want to get it wrong, but I'm scared to get it right. And so that's what divine grace and love does. It covers and empowers us because he's a loving father who when we walk with him, he guides you. But see, if you do it on your own, and you tell him, I'm okay, I'm going to do it and I'm going to go. He goes, okay, see how far you get with that one. But that's not a heaven and hell issue. It's not whether you're saved or not, whether it works. Even though out of genuine belief there will be some works. You hear what I'm trying to say? So it's based on his righteousness, but there is an expectation of obedience with God. He has an expectation. He's returning and he says, when I return, will I find a find people of? Right. So you need to know what faith is and you need to know your life. Paul said, I live my life by faith in who? So all this is contained in Jesus. So we're to be a people living a life of faith in Jesus Christ. And the challenge is you can think you are but not be. Like I'm sure those people in Matthew 7 got a bit of a wake-up call. Because there's two positions. Well, there's actually three positions. There's the slothful position, which is the person or the Christian who genuinely believes, believe with your mouth, confess with your heart that you are saved, you are saved. So you absolutely believe that Jesus died and rose again for your sin. You might not actually know him that well, but you believe that to be true. But then you live for you, yeah? So you might come along here, but you're really living for you. So everything is, you know, you're building your own empire. It's about your own physical family. It's about your job. And so it's like, yeah, I'll come along when it works out for me. But really, I'm about me and my life. Okay? And then I ask God to bless that. Are you tracking? Okay? So it's like you incorporate God into your life, but he's not your life. And then you're asking him to bless your life, and you're hoping that's going to be a good life. Okay? So there's those people. Then on the stream, you've got the guys and the girls who are so passionate, but they've got no, zeal, they've got no knowledge. So they're all about going to change the world. Okay? So they are so different to those guys. Because those guys can't get out of bed. But these guys are here early. And they're like, man, we need to do this. And we, we're going to build the church. And we're going to build the kingdom. This is the language that come out of their mouth if you hear it. We're going to do. We're going to do. I'm going to build. I'm going to build. We can change the world. We can change the world. This is the language. This is how you identify it. Okay? And they're all about, but they have all this passion and zeal, but not in accordance to knowledge. True knowing. And then you've got the smaller group in the middle. And they've entered into Christ, and Christ has entered into them, and they're one with Christ. And they start to be shown through the Holy Spirit because they're not trying to change the world because they know they can't even change themselves. But they're not asleep, slothful either. They genuinely have an impact, and they're falling in love, falling and falling in love, and they want to live. And God starts to show them through fellowship this divine, narrow way. And they start to realize that love is the first thing that must define it all because they've had 1 Corinthians 13 opened up to them. 
and then they have all the other scriptures opened up around works. And you bring those two called faith and works together and you actually walk in oneness and alignment to the word. And you realize apart from him you can do nothing because that's what Jesus did and said and lived. And you're aware of that, but you're actually able to, and now your life is becoming the demonstration. But the place and the posture in which everything is happening that people are seeing is coming from an invisible realm. So that's why you can't copy it. It's not something you copy. You have to be in the process that that person is in called imitate Christ. And all of a sudden now, that's where the true oneness is. Because oneness is never found in me and Tim doing an activity together. It's found in Christ. So we can do all these activities together and have no spiritual oneness. Because that's not where oneness is found. Oneness is found oneness in God. Okay, So we must be in one with God before we're one. Oneness here is the outcome of oneness there. Loving here is the outcome of loving here. You see, the cross, if I take away, if I take away the vertical cross, there is no cross, Correct. And so if I'm not vertically in love and know what that is to love the Father with all my heart, soul, mind, strength and not be loving others, then how can I love you guys? I won't be. I'll be in love with me because there's no that. And so how am I going to live out these works that have been prepared beforehand when I won't even know what they are because I need to know what they are to see them because they're in this realm called faith and then this outworks in my life. And so now I'm walking in fellowship with God and others that are all on that journey. So I see my brothers and sisters that are building their own lives over here. And I see my brothers and sisters that are running around trying to change the world. And you pray and you love and you go, well, I know that's not fully him. And I know that's not fully him, even though they both have the spirit and we're all in the same family. But actually, I need to walk in an alignment to him, which is narrow, and the only way I can discover that is if I know him. Because then the fruit of that comes out. Because I'm not trying to produce fruit. It's an outcome of abiding. I'm not trying to go and do all these works. They find you. And it's all done from this word called rest. So there's no burnout because I'm not the one that's doing the work. I'm just the recipient and I'm the one serving, but I'm full of another power that's truly eternal called Jesus Christ, who is the power and the wisdom of God. And unfortunately, this servant, this person who didn't really know who he was and didn't really know who his master really was because he had a messed up version, you're an angry man. Is God going to judge the earth? Yes. Is God going to pour out his wrath upon the earth? Yes, he is. Is God a God to be feared from a healthy perspective, reverence? Yes, he is. But that can so easily be twisted if I don't see it right, especially if my upbringing, my upbringing and what I've been taught God is, is the opposite to who he actually is. And so I live my life in fear, not in faith, and I keep my distance because maybe I don't want to get too connected in a body because I might get hurt and I got hurt once so I'm going to just play on the outside and just keep it out there but actually I've been called to be on the inside and so I'm only sabotaging myself if I do that 
Because ultimately I'm not playing my part. I'm running in my own individual lane when I'm supposed to be in a lane with other people. So when you take these two parables, which are stories God is saying, my people, do you love me? Do you actually love me with all your heart? Can you love one another the way I love you? So he's asking us that question. He's saying, my people, are you living with and for me to see my will established? I'm bringing it to your attention today. Not me, the Holy Spirit. So he's giving us all an opportunity to be aware of what has been in his word forever. Many don't go there. Because it creates a bit of a, doesn't it? Creates a tension. But we need tension. We've got to walk in the tension, yeah? Now, it's not a love issue from his to you. It's the other way around, isn't it? So he says, I'm in a covenant with you. I'm never breaking that covenant. I'm not breaking. You might break it with me, but I'm not going to break it with you. It's sealed in my son's blood. That's how much I love you. That before you even had a chance to, you were created in me to love me. But you must know me, not know about me. You must be prepared to spend the time and seek me with all your heart because I promise you, if you do, you will find me. And if you find me, you will have the life I promise you. So my prayer is we go there together. Amen.